Welcome to the Explore the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. This is the Explore the Circular Economy podcast, where we talk about the transition away from a take-make-waste linear economy to one that designs out waste and pollution, keeps products and materials in use, and regenerates natural systems, the circular economy. My name is Seb. I'm the host of this podcast from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. In today's episode, we're talking about the crucial role that circular economy can play in tackling climate change. We'll be talking about why renewable energy, while crucially important, is not enough and why we need to fundamentally rethink the way we make and use our products. We'll be talking about the circular economy principles and the role they can play in mitigating climate change by eliminating CO2 emissions, and we'll be bringing it to life with some real-life examples. Um, Joining me, of course, in the co-hosting chair is Laura, and our guest on the show is the Foundation's author of our recent report on this topic called Completing the Picture, that is Suki. Um, And Laura began the show by asking Suki to remind us why is there such an urgency about this climate change topic? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. And yes, of course. Um, So we are all acutely aware of being in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic. But what we also find ourselves in the middle of is a climate emergency. And the question here is, how can we avoid the next global crisis? Right. So if we look at climate change, science shows that we must keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees. And to do that, we must aim for net zero emissions by 2050 if we are to avoid irreversible climate effects and avoid devastating impacts on our society, economy and environment. And the problem we find ourselves in today is that we're nowhere near to meeting our climate goals. And if we fail to significantly reduce our emissions, then the carbon budget we have to limit the temperature to 1.5 degrees will be used up within less than eight years. And so this is quite problematic and it leaves us with very little time. And in order to be able to tackle this, we really need ambitions to be much more uh, well ambitious and, and we need transformative actions. And uh, I mean, that story, is, as, as Lara kind of fronts up with, is probably quite familiar to many people watching this episode. Don't worry, guys, it's going to get even more positive as the as the show progresses. But that's the context. What our viewership will also possibly be kind of thinking or maybe assuming is, well, this is really about transitioning to renewable energy. It's about transitioning away from fossil fuel based energy source of energy to renewable energy. Is that true? It is very important. So when we talk about tackling climate change, um, renewable energy and energy efficiency are absolutely critical in our fight against climate change. And we can already see tremendous progress taking place that's already achieving already. Uh, A great example is how renewable energy and energy efficiency has been estimated to be able to provide 90% of the energy-related emissions reduction by 2050. So that's very exciting. And it really helps show how much progress we're already making. However, I think the issue we wanted to highlight in the paper is that although renewable energy and energy efficiency are really critical, it just won't be enough if we are to reach this uh, these net zero emissions by 2050. And this is what we wanted to highlight. And just just a very quick clarifying question. Energy efficiency. What, what do we mean when we talk about energy efficiency? 
Um, we're talking about uh, being able to do the same amount of performance, but then with less energy, um, which is critical. I mean, this, these are things that we look at, for example, within the built environment or in, in, in the way we produce our goods. Um, but yeah, so so these are, and especially renewable energy, there's a lot of attention on that and it's absolutely important. But if we are to limit the temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, we will need uh, more solutions to help us uh, basically close that emissions gap. And Suki, um, could, you, could you elaborate a little bit on this? Why is it not enough, as you say, uh, to shift to renewable energies and invest in energy efficiency? Yeah, and this is a good question. I think we get that question quite a lot. So if we look at the global emissions today, all of the CO2 emitted around the world of that, around 55% of those emissions come from the energy sector. So these are emissions that come from the burning of fossil fuels for the production of energy and for heat generation, but it's also the burning of fossil fuels for within your building. So for heating, cooking, lighting, but also for transportation. Um, and these emissions, that 55%, can more easily be tackled through renewable energy and energy efficiency. But the question here is, what about the overlooked emissions? What about the remaining 45%? And here, the remaining 45% comes from the way we produce our goods and manage our land. So these are emissions, for example, that come from the way we produce our goods, but also from the way we produce materials like uh, steel, cement, aluminium, and plastic, and these emissions cannot easily be tackled through renewable energy and energy efficiency. It's a lot trickier. So to, to give you, an I guess, a, a simple and an illustrative example, if I were to, see, to say to you car emissions, what do you think of? I think of the exhaust pipe. Right, so if you uh, think of duster. car emissions, <laughs> exactly. So you think of exhaust fumes. So when we talk about how can we tackle these greenhouse gas emissions, you think of electrification. How can we electrify our cars? And this is uh, definitely an important uh, step towards uh, tackling these emissions. But what about the car itself? And you know, what about all the energy that went into making that car? How do we tackle those emissions? And so this is the untold story. Those are the overlooked emissions that we try to address uh, in the paper. And so we're talking about here, like actually making plastics or steel involves quite a bit of energy going into the production processes. And there's, and there's energy inputs and emissions that come from those energy inputs across the value chain, not just in these specific big industries that are powered directly by industry, like a building, for example. What, um, Suki, my question to you is what makes these emissions so hard to tackle? I'm talking about the 45% that now. Yeah. So let's take a look at these four materials, right? So steel, cement, aluminum, and plastic. There are three key factors that make it quite difficult for renewable energy and energy efficiency to solve. And these come down to uh, process emissions, high melting temperatures, and end-of-life treatment. So if we look at process emissions, here we're talking about the chemical processes in the making of materials like iron, uh, cement and plastic. So turning iron to iron oxide, the calcination of limestone to make cement. Um, uh, you know, plastic in itself is made of carbon. These chemical, uh, chemical processes um, um, emit CO2 or, or require carbon. These are things that happen when you're making materials. You cannot really solve this through renewable energy. 
When we talk about high melting temperatures, steel is a great example. You need temperatures that go all the way up to 2000 degrees Celsius. Um, there's a lot of innovation happening in terms of electrification, um, and that is very exciting. However, currently it is not put, uh, put up at scale and it's not yet very cost effective. So the reality of the situation is that we are still very much dependent on the burning of fossil fuels to generate these very high temperatures. Um, and then of the end of, end of life treatment, plastic is a great example here. A lot of the plastic today is still being incinerated. When you incinerate plastic, you emit CO2. Again, all these examples uh, cannot be tackled through renewable energy and energy efficiency. We need different system level solutions that address the way we produce and use our materials. And, and I think what I like about what you're saying, sorry to jump in again, but uh, is that, we could go. We could make the transition to renewables, 100% renewable-powered buildings, uh, transportation systems, and uh, and our like energy system, you know, energy sector. And we still would only be. I mean, and it's a you know, it's a significant percentage, 55%. But we'd still be only 55, only be tackling 55% of the emissions, which isn't enough to achieve the targets and goals and ambitions that you set out in the introduction. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And this episode is called Tackling Climate Change, the case for a circular economy for a reason. And Seb has mentioned in the beginning of the show the three principles of the circular economy, designing out waste and pollution, keeping products and materials in, in use for as long as possible, and regenerating natural systems. Um, so Suki, my question is, how can the circular economy help us tackle the remaining 45%? And it would be great if you could illustrate this with some mm -hmm. examples. So I'll just go I use the three principles, and this is a simplification, um, but it, it just helps illustrate. But I'll go, for example, if we're talking about designing out waste, what you're inherently doing is uh, you're avoiding uh, virgin materials that are being produced, then wasted, and then filled. So you're avoiding the greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with virgin materials, the production of those, you're avoiding the, also the emissions are associated with the incineration of it. So by designing out waste, you are tackling these emissions. Um, and then you've got keeping materials in use. Uh, in this principle, when you do that, when you keep materials being recirculated within the economy, what you're doing is you're preserving all of the energy that went into making that product. You're preserving it, pres preserving it for longer within the economy. Um, and then we've got regenerating natural systems. And when we when, with that specifically, we're talking about bringing nutrients back into the soil, creating healthier soils. And by doing that, you're preserving and maintaining the, the carbon sequestration potential of soils so they can act as carbon sinks. So again, it's a simplification, but it, it, it shows how each of these principles contribute to reducing greenhouse gas. Um, and I guess I could offer a few examples to illustrate this. Um, I have uh, two examples, uh, the car and the food system. Uh, but I'll start with the car because I had used this earlier on today uh, as an example. But I'll start with designing out waste. When we talk about car production, there's a lot of scrap material that's generated during the production. So how can we eliminate waste across the supply chain? Um, and here you've got you know, new uh, industrial processes, um, or you could think of uh, uh, substituting with different materials that are more um, efficient, you know, material efficiency. And these kind of things, um, what you're doing, again, you're, you're avoiding virgin material production that ends up being wasted in landfills. So in that sense, you're avoiding those associated emissions. 
When designing out waste, it's also about, let's say, thinking about how do you design cars with less material? If you have less material, your need for raw materials is lower and therefore lower emissions. But also if you have less material, your car is lighter. If your car is lighter, your fuel consumption is less and therefore also your emissions are lower. So that's example from designing out waste. And for keeping materials in use, here we are thinking about how can we design cars to be more durable, modular? How can you um, design a car in such a way that the components can be reused, remanufactured, recycled? What you're effectively doing is you're prolonging the lifetime of the car. And in doing that, you're preserving the energy for longer. But at the same time, by reusing these materials, you are avoiding new production, you're avoiding landfill, therefore avoiding emissions. Um, and then I think a great example is was recycling. You know, recycling is a lot less carbon intensive than the production of primary materials. So as an example, if we look at those four materials, materials, steel, cement, and aluminum, as I mentioned earlier, um, these recycled materials can generate 40, the processing uh, generates 40 to 70% fewer CO2 compared to virgin material production. So that's a really interesting example where you can also save emissions. Um, so that's the example for the car. So, so the point being extracting raw materials to then produce for the first time produces more emissions than when they cycle through the kind of loops of a circular economy, whether that's reuse or remanufacture or recycling. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's about making sure that you optimize the use of your materials um, keep them in use for as long as possible so you avoid them to be incinerated where emissions are uh, associated with that, but also um, avoiding new production if it's not necessary. Yeah. And this, and this really echoes kind of the foundation's butterfly diagram for anyone who's not familiar with that, I'm sure many people are, where we talk about the fact that those loops in the technical cycle they all, you know, they all have some reflection in terms of the embedded energy that's that's held within the product. And we don't have a loop for, you know, there is no loop for if you have to make it all from new again. Mm -hmm. But the point is that all of the loops keep more embedded energy and value than the um, than making it fresh. And then as you go in, the, yeah. you know, the different processes use less and less energy or new inputs. Yes, absolutely. Um, would so it be food. useful to give, uh, yeah, food? So if we look at the first food system, it's slightly different because we're looking at the biological um, cycle. But if I start with designing out waste, it is quite similar, right? A lot of waste, uh, if we look at food supply chains, around 25% of food is being wasted. And so how can you um, avoid unnecessary waste across the supply chain? So one of the things you could do is try to better match supply and demand. Um, there's also an opportunity to redistribute surplus edible food for human consumption. Um, by doing that, you're avoiding the production of food that you end up wasting that people don't consume and then get incinerated. So similarly there, you're then avoiding these emissions that are associated with new production and then incineration. Another element, keeping materials in use. Well, from a food system, we're talking about closing nutrient loops. So how can we, if we look at unavoidable food waste, things like food leftovers, agriculture byproducts, um, can we find a way to compost those? Can we find a way to bring those nutrients back into the soil? And, and by doing that, it, it can act as an organic fertilizer. So you're then replacing chemical fertilizers that are much more energy intensive for their production, but also you're creating healthier soils and preserving their carbon sequestration potential. Um, and then the last principle, regenerate natural system, is a very important one, of course, for the food system. And here, regenerative agriculture 
is a critical one. So with regenerative agriculture, we're talking about practices that shift away from synthetic towards organic fertilizers. We're talking about employing crop and livestock rotation. It's about moving away from, uh, you know, reducing tillage so that you don't disturb the soil and therefore release the CO2. It's about promoting agrobiodiversity. All of these things, uh, the main impact of these things is that you are creating healthier soils, higher fertility, soil fertility, higher biological diversity. All of that preserves uh, also and conserves the natural capacity of the soil to sequester carbon and act as carbon sinks. And um, a great example or uh, of, of, of a company, Indigo Ag, that has done an estimation on this, but they've shown that if we were to increase today soil organic content of 1% to pre-industrial times, so 3%, that alone can help soak up up to 1 trillion tons of carbon from the atmosphere. So that really shows the importance of keeping our soils healthy. So yeah, so this is the example for uh, the food system. Thank you, Suki. Sorry, jump in, Lara. I, I just wanted to say and and to underline something um, that I've that I've yeah kind of heard with what you were speaking about this, which is um, sometimes uh, the circular economy gets really related to sustainable development goal number twelve, which is a responsible consumption and production. But you clearly have mentioned now many others which you know could benefit from just using the circular economy as a framework, like climate action, life below water, um, life online, and, and, and I mean, you probably mentioned others that I've missed. Um, so, so I just wanted to highlight this because I think that sometimes um, we talk, and, and especially even in the mm-hmm. show, we're talking about the circular economy as kind of like an option, um, you know, to get to those climate tar- targets, but it's yes. much more, yeah. It can it can have many yeah. other benefits. Absolutely, I think the circular economy is a, a delivery mechanism, really, to achieving multiple uh, goals. Um, and so, yeah, whether that is resilience or um, economic growth or climate change, so I think this is, a, I think, a critical part. Yes, absolutely. So we we dove deep into this in the paper we published in September that you're a big part of. Suki, what uh, can you tell us in a bit more detail? What kind of so you've given us examples of how circular principles can help to tackle climate change? We talked a bit about the role and the place it sits, you know, circular as a solution sits within tackling t- climate change. Um, but what did we model and what did we explicitly find out in our research? Yeah, so um, the paper is called Competing the Picture how the circular economy tackles climate change. We pub- uh, it was published last year, September, and it was written in collaboration with Material Economics, who's a consultancy in Stockholm. And in the paper, what we wanted to show was the importance of addressing the, the 45%, right? Which are the overlooked emissions that have to do with the way we produce our goods and manage our lands. Um, so to illustrate the opportunity, we modeled five key areas uh, that are part of industries, very highly emitting industries. So we've modeled, we've focused on cement, steel, uh, plastic and aluminium, as well as food. And when we apply the three principles I just explained earlier on, and we apply these three principles to these five key sectors, we find that a circular economy can reduce emissions by 45% for those uh, five areas. Um, And that is uh, 9.3 billion tons of CO2 equivalent, which is the equivalence of eliminating emissions from all transport globally. So it really helps illustrate how that can help, uh, how circular economy is key in helping us 
uh, close this emissions gap. Um, however, as you see, we still need the remaining 45%. We will still need uh, other solutions like emerging technology, um, carbon capture storage, uh, and also, you know, diet shifts is a critical one to help us uh, close this emissions gap all the way down to net zero emissions by 2050, which is critical if we are to meet our 1.5 degree target. Um, that with COVID-19, we've obviously seen very quick and unprecedented, well, not, not mm. unprecedented, but almost unprecedented uh, reaction uh, by policymakers, national governments and cities taking control and measures to protect uh, both uh, people and the economy. Um, and it's true that we haven't seen such a quick reaction with climate yeah. change. And uh, Marcos on LinkedIn is saying, uh, that COVID-19 shows the effects in a very short term, while climate change, many people do not feel or perceive the effects uh, in such short term. Um, yeah. So how do, how do we deal with this? How do we uh, convince these people or, or how can we uh, influence uh, and get a similar response with climate change? Hmm. I mean, that's a, a very important question, a very good question. I think now with the pandemic, what we've realized is, is how interconnected we are. Um, I don't think we have much of a choice to not take action. You know, in a way, the pandemic, it offers a glimpse of the future. Um, the current levels of the economic disruption that we're facing today could become our reality in 2050 if we do not meet our climate goals. So like the pandemic, climate change is a global problem that is uh, systemic in nature, and it affects us all in this interconnected world. So as we think about recovering from the pandemic, and, and we think about how to build back a better and more resilient economy, we really must think about how we can reduce uh, the occurrence of future shocks, and like climate change, which is, uh, you know, looming in the background. It's something you, we cannot avoid. Uh, and I think we've seen today already what a global crisis can do in this interconnected world. Um, but apart from that, I think what's also very important to highlight is, is climate action, you know, could really help accelerate the recovery. Um, so by creating additional jobs, by driving capital formation, by increasing economic resilience. So there's also a lot of opportunities we can tap into. And so it is really important that climate change remains on the agenda as a key strategic priority for both governments and businesses as we tackle the um, coronavirus uh, pandemic. And and we've talked about it a bit in episodes of this show already and in other places, but it feels like that topic of resilience is really important. Mm. It's kind of like, it's the power of a circular economy. The linear economy is very much about efficiencies of scale. How do we optimize each in independent piece of the system? The circular economy is about how do we optimize the system and how do we, as part of that, how do we build resilience into it uh, we haven't got much time left yeah. Suki but I know that that is a theme that we do just start to explore tentatively in the paper as well yes absolutely it's a it's a very interesting topic and a very relevant topic today um, and we've touched upon it on in the paper we've looked at agro, uh, regenerative agriculture and supply chains I think for regenerative agriculture there's a lot more evidence on that right so you know I was mentioning earlier earlier natural farming practices the main impact that what you're doing is creating healthier soils if you have healthier soils then you are also improving the water retention capacity of those soils so when you do that, um, you're increasing your resilience against climate change because in a times of flood, it can help absorb 
uh, water and therefore reduce flood risks. But also in times of drought, it can help store water. And so uh, farmers can have higher yields than, than normal. So this is from the regenerative agriculture. And then from supply chains, this is a less researched area. But um, I guess here we were hinting towards, well, um, as we are faced with climate change, we will, we're going to have a, a lot more climate events and hazards. So hurricanes, floods, and storms are beco will become more uh, frequent in the future. And these can disrupt global supply chains in different parts of the world. And they can damage your supply. Um, they can damage your operations and your material transport. So then here we we're exploring, you know, how can a circular economy increase resilience? And here, circular economy companies that are building flexibility and adaptability, there you have an, an opportunity to increase your resilience. So remanufacturing, reuse, repair, what you're doing, you're creating a more flexible business model that allows you to, let's say, get components from your clients, makes you less reliant, let's say, to, uh, let's say, raw materials on the other side of the world that might be very at risk to climate disruption. So it's all about, I think, in this case, building in flexibility, adaptability. But yeah, it's a, it's very context specific and there's a lot more research that needs to happen in this uh, area. So 45% of CO2 emissions globally can be attributed to the way in which we make and use our everyday products and goods like buildings, like cars, like clothes, and of course food. And uh, even just in our research, where we looked explicitly at those sectors that Suki mentioned, we found a 9.3 billion gigaton saving of CO2 emissions by switching from linear to circular. I hope you enjoyed that episode of the podcast. Um, do remember to like and share and comment and do those nice things wherever you listen to our podcast. And we'll see you next time on the Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Explore the Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.